This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. The leadership development and the leadership academies and all the things we do, it's not about the title that you're going to have someday. From my leadership academy days, I'm still friends with, with folks who, are, who went through it with me, but also it's about leading meetings. And, you know, there are opportunities for people to lead every single day. Time and time again, at the end of all of our leadership programs, the important feedback is that participants say, I just loved meeting people like me. I just love the opportunity to build relationships with people who are in a similar stage of life and season of life and have the same challenges and thoughts and doubts and and are curious about things. And it just so many things come back to that, just reaching out to each other and building relationships and community. So I think that's really unique that you have that as a, a guidepost. And I love it. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Chris Rungi, the Associate Provost for Faculty Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Hello, Chris. How are you doing today? Hello, Kim. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm chilly and getting ready for maybe having a snow day tomorrow morning, like I guess you all are up there in Wisconsin. Yes, indeed, we have. (laughs) (laughs) So we... You know, the whole purpose of this podcast is for us to get to know each other and inspire each other and and just take some time out of our regular jobs and conferences to kind of glean some insight. So we kind of want to start with uh, telling us your personal story. How did you get into faculty affairs and faculty development? Oh, th- thanks. I I um I actually have to say my uh I was uh mentored into this role by my department chair. Um, so as a faculty member in the ENT department, I uh, was talking to my department chair about my career and, um, and and various aspects of what I'm interested in, of course, my science. But he really felt strongly that uh, I would love serving on the MCW Faculty Career Development Committee. And he encouraged me to uh, run for a position there. And so I did. And I was elected to the what we call the FCDC and uh, as soon as I started working on that committee and working on all things faculty development, I absolutely loved it. Um, I remember thinking, and since it's a committee, uh, then you do have to rotate off eventually. And for thinking, I never want to rotate off the faculty development work. <laughs> so how can I perhaps even turn this into a career? So it really started there um, with my service on one of our committees. And I was able to, it was wonderful. I, I would have the opportunity to chair the committee for, uh, after a couple of years serving, I was able to, to chair the committee for a couple of years. And then uh, the Office of Faculty Affairs at MCW then developed a, a position for director of faculty development. And I applied for and was able to get that role. And that's where it sort of solidified my the rest of my road where I've ended up now. So uh, it really started with my service on that committee. So for the junior um, assistant deans and staff folks and people out there who are thinking about academic affairs and faculty development. And, you know, we, you know, in this profession, we sometimes advise our junior faculty members to be very deliberate in 
things to say yes and no to the idea that if you say yes to everything, when something good or maybe more appropriate comes along, you have no capacity to take those on. So we teach our faculty how to say no sometimes. So I'm curious if you could help folks out there think about when you got that invitation to join that faculty uh, careers and development committee, you said you didn't really know much about it, but like what kinds of, can you tell us more about the, um, the intensity of the commitment and what kinds of, uh, you know, did you get percent effort to protect you from any other obligations or was this like a once a month obligation? Uh, and then what, what kinds of projects were happening there? Oh, that's so great. Um, yeah, I, I, so there was no, uh, time like a, an FTE or anything devoted to my service on this committee, I think it helped that my department chair was the one to recommend me to participate on this committee because that was already an endorsement of understanding that I would be spending some time working on these activities. But uh, so that that right away was kind of a nice way to yes for me because I knew he supported me in that. So I think that's important is ensuring that you have the support um, before you undertake something like this to make sure that your leader will be supportive of you and understand that that's a place you're spending your time. Um, that said, it, the way the FCDC worked here uh, was it, it's a once a month commitment. There was a one hour meeting once a month. Um, and then sometimes we would, if you're on a subgroup, if you're working on a particular project, you might meet for another time during the month, maybe one other hour, for example, during the month. Um, at that time, we were working on, we were, the FCDC was in charge of the faculty development, the career development workshops. Uh, so we spent a lot of our time working on those. Um, it wasn't a huge time commitment uh, because a lot of the aspects to it were things that, that a, there was a template there already. And so you could, uh, there's just some, there was some work to be done that we knew we needed to do. And so it was well organized. Um, there is also the room, though, to do uh one thing I like the best about the faculty career development committee is there's room to do creative things. So if you thought of a new idea that, uh, for example, um, a, a lecture series or pearls of wisdom we did for the basic scientists, for example, um, series, then if you could work on that. And commitment uh, wasn't very large, um, but it was very impactful for me and for my career, as we can see. But also, um, even though the time commitment itself wasn't very large, whatever time I did spend on it, I loved it so much. It didn't feel like it was yeah. taking away from anything. Right. So it really felt like it was, it was enhancing my own career and my passion that I didn't even know I had. So it did, it didn't feel it was taking away for some, from something else, for example. So you had a lot of opportunity for some creative projects on that committee and you had the endorsement from your department director and you ended up having a lot of fun there. And then you talked about the Office of Faculty Affairs opened up a position in faculty development, or was it a faculty affairs position when you first had entree after that committee? Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a director of faculty development position that was oh, okay. a new, and there was in in the Office of Faculty Affairs, and it was a, I think it was a point one FTE, like literally half a day a week. Oh wow! <laughs> but but it was you know, and I I remember thinking, well. You know, you make it work. Again, it was, I was so passionate that it, a half a day was great. So that was fine. Um, and anything to sort of pry that door open, I suppose. Um, it was a new position in it and, uh, for them. So it was actually very supportive, uh, by our leadership to even, you know, have that, that position open up. Um, and since then, uh, now that I'm in this role, I've been able to take that role from the director of faculty development 
turn it into a dean for faculty affairs position. So I was able to transform that. I think, you know, it was one of those, they wanted to invest. And so it was like, let's, it was almost a pilot project of sorts, but it turned out very successfully and it worked really well for our faculty and for the institution. So, yeah. so there's more investment in that. And, and I, I understand that approach to doing, yeah. to doing it that way too. Yeah. So when you first got that point one FTE and it was a new position, you were coming from some background on that committee, but I'm wondering, was that the moment when you got involved at the, the AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs, or did somebody else in your office have some familiarity with that? I'm wondering how you parlayed that committee work into an official leadership position doing faculty development. How did you learn your way into that official role? Yeah, it was, it was great. The, our Office of Faculty Affairs at MCW had a nice already had a good relationship in the group of faculty affairs. So uh, Alonzo Walker, who was a senior associate dean of faculty affairs and diversity before I took this role. So he was my predecessor. He had a nice relationship in the GFA. Um, Kamara Ellison also um, had a nice relationship with GFA and WMC. And we participated in the standpoint survey, which was faculty forward back in the day. Um, and so we had a really nice relationship already saved, uh, officially joined the Office of Faculty Affairs. So I was, I became one of the representatives for our institution when I joined the Office of Faculty Affairs. So I was able to participate in the GFA at that point, and it was fantastic. I went to the I went to the GFA meeting my first year as with this role, and was able to present and uh, meet a whole bunch of people. And it's been it's been fantastic, a wonderful environment. So really, from the beginning, uh, I was able to participate at the GFA as soon as I had my director role here in faculty affairs. Got it. And I think actually, Kim, we were on the same, I was on the research and project. Yeah, we were. Subcommittee with you. Yeah. <laughs> so I joined yeah. the committee right away and got just, you know, got my hands right into it as I tend to do. <laughs> so that's a, that's a career booster. How about a plug for the GFA folks? If you're out there and you're curious how to make a career boost, go from a point one to be an associate provost, just like Dr. Chris Rangi. Join the research and project <laughs> development subcommittee. It's a career maker. Yeah. So can you it describe is, to is. everybody, uh, what does your Office of Faculty Affairs and or Faculty Development Office look like? We're, we try to, you know, we, all of our offices are so different in terms of FTE or people or size or breadth and depth. Can you give us a, paint us a picture of both those offices or if they're one and the same? Sure. We, um, so it's, uh, our Office of Faculty Affairs is separate from our Office of Academic Affairs which is really geared toward um, our learners, um, medical students, and in particular, the um, we have graduate school that represents our um, and that has a postdoc office. So that's for our PhD students and our our master's students and in, in postdocs. Um, and uh, faculty affairs uh, here at MCW, we are actually aligned very closely with our Department of Human Resources. Um, and we share, um, we share resources and staff and, and that's, that's kind of how we've made it work here. There's so much overlap with our talent development and the career development work that we do with faculty that it just made a lot of sense for us to do it that way. If we talk strictly Office of Faculty Affairs, then I'm the Associate Provost and we do have a Director of Faculty Affairs who is, uh, Stacey Driska. And then, uh, Kamara Ellison is our Senior Director of Talent and Faculty Affairs. And then, as I mentioned before, we have an assistant dean for faculty affairs. Uh, her name is Jennifer Apps, and she is a faculty member and um, reports directly to me. And so we work very closely on all the faculty development 
work that that she executes on. We have a few, like probably four staff members or so that um, really working hard on the um, on the different aspects of uh, the promotion and, and tenure and the processing of the letters and some of the more administrative aspects and just making sure that we're very efficient, responsive in in that type of work that we do also. So so it's a, it's a pretty lean operation, but I think we're very efficient and we're still able to support all of our faculty. And we have about at least at least 1,700 faculty or so now, and we, we do continue to grow. So why don't you tell us all about something you've, um, you've lately been doing or you're excited about, something unique or different or innovative or... What's well, you know? What are you jazzed up about? Right. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that I, I guess I've spent most of my time on, and I'm very excited about in a lot of ways, um, is the uh, the well-being work that we're doing for faculty well-being. So um, one of the reasons this is so we have three strategic focus areas in the Office of Faculty Affairs, and that's uh, faculty well-being, career advancement, and leadership development. Um, so we have a, a lot of our career advancement work we've been doing for a long time, um, also our leadership development. And so some of those are ongoing. We're always looking to, to be novel and, and do new things there. But the well-being piece is so critical, and it's kind of a foundation for everything with, that we need and want to do here um, and in academic healthcare. So uh, the well-being is near and dear to my heart um, because I have personally been participating in a lot of the work that we're doing to advance the well-being of our faculty. So we're doing a couple different ways. We we have now instituted the well-being index as a measure mm-hmm. of uh, well-being for faculty, and it's helping us steer our resources and direct ourselves to the departments and divisions that maybe need the most, have, have the highest distress scores, and that need institutional support. Oh, um, you actually cull the data for... Um, some triggering events or some high scores or low scores, if you will, and you actually design an event interventions. Wow. Yeah. So that's what we're doing now. Um, and we have, so there, there's a norm, it's normalized. Uh, so we do it for our basic science faculty. They're normalized against the U.S. workers. And then we also do it for our clinical faculty. They're normalized, uh, against the other, other physicians nationally. So if they reach a distress score that's considered at risk, and in a department, if their average distress score is considered close to or at risk or above, then uh, I have personally, uh, Stacy and I have been, and sometimes and Jennifer, um, we have been going and meeting with the department leaders to find out specifically what the needs are for their faculty, for their well-being, and finding ways that the institution can support them and wow. faculty affairs support them. Um, and coming up with some pretty novel ideas. Some is career advancement. Some are, are very specific um, issues that might face basic science faculty, for example. And so we have some novel initiatives going around those, um, mm-hmm. hopefully to support the well-being. The other aspect that's most, that's very interesting to me is um, as the associate provost, I'm in the position now where I've been directly interfacing with the leaders from our hospital partners um, and going around our practice leadership. Um, and we've been going and doing listening sessions for every single department and division to hear directly from the providers, so APPs and physicians, to find out what are the drivers for their distress. For example, what are mm. what are the inefficiencies? What are the things that we need to change as an organization 
Um, and I come at it from a well-being lens. Um, the other leaders, of course, are also there from, you know, a, an efficiency standpoint um, and to make sure that the work environment is is working for the the people delivering the care, also our patients. Mm-hmm. But I, I do, I'm very clear that I'm there from a well-being standpoint because we know that these are the of distress and burnout. Mm-hmm. So being able to partner with, this is one of the first times I've really been able to partner with the hospitals and and do this kind of work. So I'm very excited about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot. Um, there's some things we can do quickly, but other things that are more long-term. But I like making this this uh, connection and relationship with our partners because honestly, the only way to address this is to truly partner yeah. with the folks who are in control of the work environment and do this together. So we all own a piece of it. Now, I'm curious, two things you said, you when you find these uh, distress scores that signify there's a department at risk, you go to the leadership of that department and you ask them, you engage in a conversation, you know, what's going on? What do your faculty need or want? I'm curious, backing that up, how do uh, you know that those leaders know what the faculty want or need? Is there, like, what's the process? Do you have something that, I imagine there's a feedback loop, you give those data directly to the department um, chairman or directors or leaders, and then do they engage in some kind of their own town hall to, to understand what they need, or is it anecdotal or just a gut instinct that when you sit down with them and look at these scores and they say, well, well, we just know that it's A, B, or C, or do they have some kind of a, is there a system in place where we conducted the XYZ internal audit or did a focus group and the faculty told us that this is exactly what they, I'm curious how that, those conversations happen. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think at this point, um, we share the data with the with the depart, uh, department chair or division chief, um, whoever is depending on the size of the department and the faculty body. So, we, and what we try to do is we meet with um, the person or persons who are most directly um, in, engaged with the faculty. Mm-hmm. In, in their media to visit, right? So, so if it's a division chief, for example, because they would actually have a better sense of what happens with their faculty on a day-to-day basis, as opposed to, you know, we, I'm sure we could meet with the chair of medicine, but probably wouldn't understand all the different microcosms. And so we do try to meet with the leader of the closest, uh, who's closest to that group of faculty. Um, and then also the, the department administrator. Um, because uh-huh. a lot of times uh-huh. the department administrator is the one who actually knows day-to-day or on the ground things that are going on and that need to be fixed or, you know, that might driving some of the distress. One reason we're able to, so we do meet with the leadership and that's just the, the beginning of it because then sometimes we followed up and we've met with, if we've met with the chair and the department administrator, then we'll follow up and meet with the division, with the division chiefs or, you know, different groups, depending on what we all kind of decide would, mm-hmm. would be the best way to approach it. But yeah, for that particular initiative, it's really about, it, it is meeting with the, the certain leaders and not necessarily all the faculty. One reason we're able to do that is because I'm also, at the same time, as I mentioned, I'm doing the listening sessions with yeah. the faculty directly um, for all of the divisions and all of the departments. So we're able to put that information together. Sometimes we can tell, I can also look and the distress score, we might also get a feeling from the ch- from the chair um, or a leader that perhaps uh, they could use uh, intervention um, mm-hmm. or, right. you know, uh, support about how to best lead the faculty and support their faculty. So that's another reason I wanted 
to do it this way is we would go and I actually kind of, then we can come out with a read on, okay, does it seem like this, this leader could actually use some help in this area as well? And that's where I might work with that person directly and or executive coaching or, or other things. So it's also another kind of data collection point, yeah. if you will, just kind of get a feel for how, how is the department being led also. I, I love that, that recognition that we have to be a little humble and maybe a little bit gracious and understanding that our leaders aren't necessarily as equipped with, as you mentioned, resources or education to have their finger on the pulse of all that's going on. The, the pressures on leaders in our departments and divisions is so extreme that, um, I think, you know, we can come down hard on them for not for not being up on all the latest this or that or feeling like they're not supporting their faculty, but they have these pressures of the the bottom line and finances and revenue generations and all these regulatory mandatory compliance things. And the pressures they have are in, immense as well. And so I, I love that you are sensitive to the whole systems approach of involving staff and faculty and leaders I think that's wonderful. And it, it just as soon as you started talking, Chris, it, I had a conversation this morning with a young faculty member and she was talking about how she had scheduled a vacation four months in advance, purchased the tickets, purchased the vacation package. And out of the blue, an administrator emailed her a couple of days ago saying, you know, we don't have enough people on deck. You need to be here and your vacation is hereby, uh, rejected it, disapproved after it had been approved and all the plans were made. And so she said, you know, I took a deep breath. It was very upsetting. I wrote an email to the the leader, the division director. I had a friend look at the email for tone and she said, I sent it. And I was very careful to be respectful saying, you know, prefacing and I understand staffing is hard. We're short. We, I get this. However, is there any way we can reconsider because blah, 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 tickets are purchased, whatnot. And she said within 30 seconds, she got a reply that was started with, I am incensed. I have worked in this as this leader for the past 30 years. I have not had a Christmas break off. I'm an Orthodox observing Jew. I've had to work the past 30 years. And this is the first Passover where I won't be able to go home and be with my family. And, and it was just, it, I felt horrible, but it so to me, we talked about turning that into an experience where this leader was expressing feelings and perhaps um, anxiety that he was not advocating for himself as well as maybe some junior fact. We're, t- we're training our junior faculty members to advocate for themselves and set boundaries and say no respectfully. And, and here in a moment of emotional, you know, overdrive, he, he just responded clearly without thinking of the tone and starting out with, I'm incensed and you have no idea. I've worked and I do this and I've not done that. And it kind of, you know, we, we turned it from a, a defensive posture to being a little bit more, you know, just being humble and thinking, all right, uh, let me put myself in this guy's shoes. So it, it opened up opportunities to, be a little bit kinder, gentler, practice some civility. And I just think we we ended up having a great conversation after that. But what you just said made me think exactly that of there's so much opportunity for all of us, the whole, the whole system. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's always, yeah, the, the pressures facing our leaders, it's just, it, it's on sides and it's immense. And I agree. My first thought when, when you recounted the, the email response from that leader, I thought, oh my gosh, is that person okay? You know, mm-hmm. like, oh, that is not, you know, and, 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 uh, we try to think that's the first thought. If something like that occurs, it's like, oh gosh, okay, this person. And um, one one reason too, I start with, with the well-being index approach to the the well-being uh, um, aspect for our faculty. When the, that's the other reason I do meet with the chairs and with the department administrators or and division chiefs first, is because yeah, you're right. Our chairs. This is also in coordination with the dean's office because the chairs are held accountable. For this, well, they're accountable for the engagement scores when we do our engagement surveys, and then also the well-being scores. And if they look like they're at risk, then the chairs are going to be asked, "What are you doing about it?" Right. And so, part of this is for faculty, for us to reach out and say, "We'll help you and support you." And then, when the dean asks you, "What are you doing about it?" You can say, "I'm working with faculty affairs, and this is the plan." Right. So that's that. This is also a way. That's that's also why we're going directly to the department leaders with this piece of it so that, so that, and then also it's just all coordinated throughout the whole institution. And and really it's not, accountability is a good thing. It's the way we get real change, but it can't be accountability in a vacuum. There needs to be support with that. And I think that's a role that, that we can, that we can have. I love that you do that. That is so, that's a challenge for us at Hopkins Working at the local level, you know, when I first came into faculty development at Hopkins, one of the leaders said to me, faculty development is local. It's like local politics. You know, you're the federal government. We're uh, the states. And a lot of this happens at the local level. And so it's building those relationships, like you said, and, and, and creating an environment well, where people recognize that we want to harmonize with you. We have resources. We, we're here for you. Let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's not have 33 departments creating their own leadership programs or tools or assessment instruments when we have people who are trained and are happy to do that for you. So I, I love how you are deliberately building those relationships and and demonstrating that we're here for faculty, and that includes the leaders who are also faculty further down the the career trajectory, but they're still our faculty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, sometimes I see them and I say, how is your well-being? Because you're faculty too. You're in my... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. do some check-ins there as well. And yeah, I think everyone's really honestly showing up every day, doing the absolute best they can, and uh, really just just doing a great job. And I just, I want to honor that as well. So everyone really cares and they're really here to do great things yeah. for our patients and for, yeah. for science. And so, yeah. The second thing you said with that kind of raised my eyebrows was you said you go into the hospital and this has been a unique opportunity for you. And you said you talk to the providers. How is that, you know, I don't work in the hospital. So how, how have you been able to navigate those relationships and, and building trust and confidence and having that um, credibility in the hospital out of the dean's role or out of the provost role to have these conversations? Yeah, I, it's, um, it's interesting. I've, so I've been at MCW for 17 years. I started here as a postdoc in 2002. Mm-hmm. January 2002. So, so I do know some people. What, what, one thing that, uh, that we've done 
is the Office of Faculty Affairs, we have our core values, and, and our, but our core, core value, really our foundational value is building meaningful relationships. And any chance we've had, especially in the last couple of years since I've been Senior Associate Dean, we've been very intentional about building relationships with our hospital partners, whether it be with employee relations, because, um, you know, we have Sometimes it's an MCW employee and then a hospital employee, but they're working together and there's an issue and we need to sort it out. So we have, we work together and, or on the legal side. So any chance we get to build a, a positive relationship with, with our partners, we've been taking, we've been very intentionally doing that and working together. So I think it's been a gradual process, but it's, it's been intentional. I don't want to say it's accidental, but it's been intentional where we really cultivate these relationships everywhere we have the opportunity. So when this um, opportunity came up, I, I had a, I have a good relationship with someone who, uh, the, the enterprise uh, CEO, um, and uh, the hospital is very interested in improving their engagement scores with our faculty. Um, and so there was motivation there, um, and they had teams going around to do this. And so uh, it sort of was serendipitous. We were talking about it, and I was asked to to participate mm-hmm. in these listening sessions um, as the MCW representative. And uh, I think it's been very meaningful uh, to to the folks in the room. So when we go see faculty, you have someone from the hospital leadership. You have someone from MCW, which is me, and you have someone from the practice a leader from the practice. And so the three of us are there saying we're, we all own this and we all want to help you do this. And we're all working together. Mm-hmm. So we we're very clear about that. And I think that that is giving people the, the optimism to think, okay, we might actually see some meaningful change. And then we're, we're, we are able to work on that together. So, and then we leave the room and we immediately talk about what can MCW do, what can the practice do and what can the hospital do? Mm. And we all go back in our faculty affairs team. I, I've actually, uh, we have, now we have monthly wellbeing meetings where we sit down and I talk about here, are all the things we discussed in these listening sessions, here are the priorities, what can we do and how, which things are we going to take and what are we going to solve and help support people with? So, and so that's, it's been kind of a nice process. Now, have you um, considered your institution going down the chief wellness officer route? Because this sounds like quite an investment with, you know, like as you just described, these three folks getting the meetings organized on the table, having the discussions, debriefing. The, I mean, this is a serious investment of time. And I'm curious if you've explored um, institutionalizing the well-being into a, a chief wellness officer like some of us are doing. Yes, um, that's exactly what the plan is. And so I do have a, a proposal in for a chief wellness officer, which the dean is in support of. So that is, that's actually, um, in process now. And, uh, before the, when we were first talking about it, the idea, the thought was, where would the chief wellness officer live, for example? And I kind of argued for, I think the chief wellness officer would be, would be great to have in the Office of Faculty Affairs. Um, this person then being in faculty affairs would be in, in charge of, uh, overseeing the well-being initiatives for both clinical and basic science faculty mm-hmm. then, uh, being in faculty affairs. Um, and so they'd collaborate and work with the practices and with the hospitals, but they would be doing this for all faculty. So that is actually something that we are, is in process right now. So that's, that's a great question. Yeah. Cause yes, this has taken, yeah, I've done, 
myself probably maybe 20 of the listening sessions. Each one's at least 45 minutes to an hour. A lot of them go over. And that's just the listening sessions themselves. But it, it does fall in the category of this is important work and really needs to happen. And I'm happy to push this forward um, in my current role uh, to, to get these things going and to, and to own it as well. And, I, and I've been enjoying it as, as hard as it is to hear my colleagues say these things. Mm. Um, it is hard. You want to solve it all right away. Mm. Uh, even when you know how to do it, it still takes a little, it's going to take some time, but we do have a sense of urgency. But, but yeah, it's, I, I, I care about it deeply. So it doesn't feel like it's been an additional thing, if, I guess, if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, you, you sound like you're always passionate about everything. So from from the committee you served on to this, you get into it. And I, I know that's true from your personality. And what I, I love the, the mantra of building meaningful relationships. And that's, that's mm-hmm. to me, it's just you cannot put a monetary value on that. And I really don't even think you can truly measure or evaluate that, that concept of just reaching out heart to heart, human to human, um, walking each other home, building friendships. And that's what, to me, it's all about. And, and I, and I love how you've made that your true north of your office. Mm-hmm. I, I was talking to somebody interviewing them for position as a, a director of one of our departments this morning. And, and she, you know, everybody was, wants to talk about leadership programs and everybody has leadership programs. And, and I was describing all our programs and, and she said, well, how do you handle the, the criticism that we create these leadership programs and, and graduate all these leaders, but there are so few leadership positions available? So are, are we not creating this, this fake or hollow cadre of people for whom we're never going to have a position because there are only a handful of leaders and we, you know, we can't just knock them off the, the pyramid. And so we got along that conversation of recognizing that, yes, there are limited leadership positions, but leadership is also taking advantage of, you know, where you are, leadership by, by your current position and not by some title necessarily. And then we got on this discussion about networking and socializing and building relationships. And so when you were saying that was your office mantra, it really, it reminded me of time and time again, at the end of all of our leadership programs, the important feedback is that participants say, I just loved meeting people like me. I just love the opportunity to build relationships with people who are in a similar stage of life and season of life and have the same challenges and thoughts and doubts and, and are curious about things. And it just so many things come back to that, just reaching out to each other and building relationships and community. So I think that's really unique that you have that as a, a guidepost. And I love it. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So can you tell us, yeah, interesting, anything else you want to share or something that you're excited about or new or a spinoff of what we've just been talking about? Uh, I guess just to, to tack on, because you, you had said this, and I, I think it's really, it's really important to drive home. I, I agree with you 100%, Kim. It's not the leadership development and the leadership academies and all the things we do. It's not about the title that you're going to have someday. Uh, I completely agree. We we learn so, not only do you get to network with people and get to know people who, yeah, from my leadership academy days, I'm still friends with, with folks who were, who went through it with me, but also it's about, it's about leading meetings and, you know, there are opportunities for people to lead every single day and to do these things. And if, 
And these are skills that if you bring them in, there's no telling all the things you can accomplish just for yourself, you know, no matter what your title is and, and for your colleagues. And, and that just, it just builds on itself as well. And I think it makes for a great, it actually builds culture. Yeah. And uh, I think that, and it brings us all to a common place that we can really um, do our best work together and serve our patients and do our best science. So yeah. I really think that that kind of is, is the underlying for all of that as well. Mm-hmm. I love how as a leader yourself, associate provost and, and those of us in this field who've come to just love serving faculty, you said something that made, that just made me feel, yes, exactly. And that is when you said you just want to get in there and solve it and fix a problem. And, and it hurts you when you step into somebody else's pain or someone comes to your office. You just, you know, many times you just want, all right, we got to fix this. We're going to take care of it. And yet, of course, that's true. There's the importance of just hearing someone and being with them and listening to them. And a lot of people will acknowledge, I know you can't fix things. I know you can't throw a million dollars at my department and hire five more administrative assistants. Or I I know that's, you know, you don't have that kind of um, power. And yet Mm -hmm. just to be able to sit and be with someone and hear them, I think is just goes a long way to just being validated and yeah, I understand that this, you know, I'm here, I'm hearing you. And that, that cannot be overlooked in the importance, not only in the policies that you've, like, for example, you've said about really building meaningful relationships, but also in all the programs we put together for our faculty that, yes, of course, we all want to do our, our best and develop quality programs. And also rest knowing that the fact that we just provide space and, and are with people and build those relationships. That is, um, that's what people are going to remember at, at the end of the day. So what's next? What, what do you think the next challenge, you know, you, well-being, you sound like you've hit this, you know, beginning to end, and it's a serious investment, and you love it. What do you, what do you think, um, think your office or your faculty might be kind of peeking around the corner or coming up? What I would love to do, I'll tell you my dream. <laughs> Good <laughs> of what's next because the well well being I think that's going to take some time so there this is a that's at least a couple year plan on cycling through and, and that's something that is infinite we'll never take our eye off of any of these strategic focus areas actually but um, but what it, here's what I would love to do and um, is you know we do our engagement surveys we do yeah, all kinds of things right <laughs> we survey. Um, here and there, and sometimes there's survey fatigue, but at the same time, we, we have really good participation in those. What I, my dream is to get to the point where we can get the right data, ask the right questions, and listen and find out all the things we need to know so that we can predict what we're going to need to do instead of getting, doing a survey, finding out the data, Hmm. figuring out this is something's been an issue for a while, and then trying to tackle it when it might even be over by the, you know, it's proactive versus reactive. Yes. So it'd be nice if there was some way to be able to get, get some sense of where things are going or do something predictive to say, hey, you know, this is where this is going to go. And why don't we get out ahead of this and we can communicate better, we can anticipate better, and we can truly help faculty, um, again, not just after some things have already happened and been stuck there for a while and then mm-hmm. unstick them just mm-hmm. to get people back to normal, 
but to really pave the way and let people be as innovative and uh, as they as they can and do their jobs with and, and do their great work they come in to do without even having to think about right. some of these other things. And um, and honestly, as we all know, the landscape is changing in, in modern healthcare and and if, if, however you want to ascribe the different uh, 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 generational differences, for example, <laughs> and what incoming generations might want and how we anticipate that, however you want to do it um, or, or frame it up. This is something that that's my dream is to be, yeah, to be proactive, to be out in front of things, to be understanding, to almost say, hey, uh, your department now is staffing, is going to have faculty at clinics all over because we've just expanded. Wow, you might not see your your colleagues as often. How are we going to make sure that you can still participate? How are we going to make sure that we can, that you that you still feel connected um, and, and that your care teams are intact? And how do you feel about that? And do some of, some of that work, um, even just something as simple, I, I'm doing this in air quotes, as simple as uh, getting a new chair. You know, if you've had a chair for 20 years and then you're getting a new one, that's, that's a big change for the department. How do you help with that change? Um, what are the types of things that we can facilitate? So, so there are some things that are a little more obvious, but some things that aren't. And, uh, I would like to be ahead of things and more predictive. That, that would be my dream. Um, what a, what a vision to be able to Mm -hmm. come up with some kind of indicators of a healthy, faculty person, a healthy division, a healthy department. And like you said, there'd be a dashboard of looking at these risks or your your distress scores, as you call it, but broadening that to say, yeah, that might sound, might sound like a, a good change, but let's keep our eyes on that because we know that one of the F, you know, X15 factors associated with this is one of these. And if we're changing that, that might change that trend line or that slope. And as you mentioned, the generational differences, that is, you're, you're really keen and visionary about that, that we designing everything from protocols to physical environments and work groups and workflows will undoubtedly change with newer generations, how, how they've become accustomed to learning and communicating and thinking and discovering information. So that's something I think that is brilliant that would be a great prognostic tool talk about you know preventive preventive wellness like we do population health you know a, a tool to figure out um like you said how to hit hit that off at the curve and head it off and gosh you, that that is really really super smart chris oh thank you well and, and even to even to um anticipate something so even to get out ahead of it and say we know this is going to stink, but we know it. We've got our eye on it. We're trying to work on ways to minimize the impact for you. You know, even just how you communicate things and empathize with people on their day to day when, mm. you know, and, and yeah, if we, if we can get a sense of some, like you said, the trajectory, I like that of, okay, this is heading this way, which means that this is where we're going to end up. So right. why don't we get in now? And we're even just, if, you know, even just like keeping an eye on the background noise, there's like, mm-hmm. so there's always something if you little see a little spike somewhere it's like oh something's changed that is not background anymore that is a thing and what is that and what what can we do what's that signaling and what can we do about it so yeah I, I don't know how to do that yet but I think that that would be really powerful um in just how we can support people there's a title of your book 
signals. <laughs> I think that's that's really really provoking. I'm, I'm gonna write that provoking. down. Thank you for time. <laughs> <laughs> well, just go to the podcast and you'll be able to hear yourself say it over <laughs> and over and over again. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Rungi, um, is there anything you'd like to leave us with, or any other thoughts? Oh gosh, no. Other than thank you so much for inviting me to yeah. to uh, have this chat today. I'm really honored, and I think. Uh, it's been really fun and, and I appreciate this and I love, I, I really love this project and I'm excited to hear all of the, all of our colleagues yes. after, uh, that go along with this too and, and the wisdom that they have to share. I'm very excited. Yeah, so. All right, everybody. So that was Dr. Chris Rungi, 17 years from postdoc to associate provost. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.